Hello and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Jerry Nowicki, and today we're discussing the Safety Act criminal justice reform and in particular its components that will end cash bail beginning January 1st. The Safety Act was passed in January 2021, but its provision to end the use of cash bail won't take effect until the calendar hits 2023. That provision, referred to as the Pretrial Fairness Act, has become hotly debated in recent months, to say the least. It's been the subject of misinformation and political mailers, but it's also been a major topic of conversation for lawmakers who are discussing potential changes to it ahead of its effective date. Enter the Loyola University of Chicago Center for Criminal Justice and its co-director, Dr. David Olson. They've been publishing a series of research briefs aimed at measuring the current system of pretrial detention against the new standards that will take effect January 1st. Here is Dr. Olson describing that research project. So our our center was created really to, our, our goal is to provide good, objective, rigorous research to policymakers and practitioners. We're nonpartisan. We, we recognized a need in, in Illinois and in the larger field for practitioners and policymakers to be able to engage with people doing research to answer the questions that they face when they're looking at policy or, or assessing the impact of policy. So kind of that's the, the spirit of our work. We had done some prior research looking at uh, changes to pretrial practices in Cook County a couple of years ago. And then when the Pretrial Fairness Act was passed and we looked at it, we said, oh, that, that's an important policy that, that probably should be evaluated. So we, we developed a proposal to evaluate the Pretrial Fairness Act uh, in an empirically rigorous way that would include jurisdictions from across Illinois because it's a statewide policy and not limited just to one jurisdiction. Um, and we received financial support to conduct the research from the National Institute of Justice, which is a, the research arm of the U.S. Department of Justice. And I think two, two takeaways from that. One is the scrutiny that research proposals are given by NIJ is extremely high. So the fact that this research was funded reflects that not only NIJ, but their panel of proposal reviewers felt that it was designed well and rigorous and, and will answer the questions. But also the important thing is that it's, it's looking at it in diverse jurisdictions across the state. So, so that's what our, our, our hope is, is that we can provide good empirical research to help those implementing the policy, but also who want to assess the, the degree to which it changes the justice system and how it impacts uh, practices. Those research briefs can be found at loyolaccj.org PFA. They examine such things as the monetary cost of cash bail, the average length of stay in jail for individuals held pretrial, and how many individuals would have been detainable under previous years had the PFA been in effect. It's a complex law with a lot of complex parts, so there's a lot of nuance to it. But Dr. Olson and I touch on a number of important aspects of the law, from who can be detained to the philosophical questions at play when a person's freedom is at stake before they are even convicted of a crime. At its core, the PFA aims to take wealth out of the equation when answering that question, 
although its opponents argue that the system that replaces it might not capture enough crimes within its standards for pretrial detention. Central to the debate is the issue of judicial discretion, so we'll also take a look at how that system changes under the PFA and what further changes could be forthcoming if a new bill circulating the legislature becomes law. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. David Olson. Okay, so there were a number of things I'll ask about shortly that I found sort of interesting in the research briefs that I've read and kind of just wonder if we want to start off with what did you find most illuminating about the research you've done uh, and maybe can you provide us a little background on, on the detainability and non-detainability of certain offenses? Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the things we recognized quickly is and we all, we knew about it from other work we'd done, is there is not a lot of data available in the state of Illinois that helps to understand pretrial practices. Um, and so the, the Pretrial Fairness Act was passed with very little understanding of exactly what pretrial practices look like in the state of Illinois. Um, I know that people who worked on putting the legislation together drew from national research, the research that we did that we did in Chicago to help inform uh, the policy, but also based it on the kind of best practices and what what people would think is is needed to ensure a fair uh, system. Uh, so the first thing we recognize is there was no information out there to help it, even guide the conversation around how many people in quote are we talking about, right? That that could be impacted by this policy or um, how does the use of jail vary across the state? And so uh, we worked in collaboration with um, criminal justice agencies, which is, is one of the primary ways we go about our work. It's done in collaboration with stakeholders. So uh, we work with the Illinois Sentencing Policy Advisory Council, which is a state agency and, and developed a methodology with them to try to identify of those people arrested in Illinois, how many had a charge that would make them eligible for detention under under two under the two kind of categories of detention eligibility. So we worked with the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council, reviewed the legislation, identified all the specific offenses that would be eligible for detention, and then worked with them to analyze data that the Illinois State Police collect about everybody arrested in Illinois. So if, and that's where if I, sorry, go ahead. if I could jump in here, those two categories are um, the willful flight standard where uh, it, it captures more offenses, I believe, if there's a, if the person is deemed to be at risk of willful flight. And then there's a safety standard, which maybe uh, there, there are fewer uh, offenses captured under that than are than under willful flight. Yeah, so with the with the dangerousness consideration, the detention net is a little bit more narrow than the willful flight. Um, it includes uh, obviously the the most serious crimes of murder and criminal sexual assault and armed robbery and aggravated battery with a firearm. Uh, it also includes illegal firearm possession offenses, uh, but then also the category of domestic violence or domestic battery offenses and. The, and I point that out because our research found that out of all the people arrested in Illinois, 
it's that latter category of individuals charged with domestic battery that actually accounts for the largest share of individuals that are eligible for detention. And it's important because the way that those behaviors are defined legally uh, under Illinois law is that uh, most of those offenses are misdemeanor crimes. And so kind of on the scale of seriousness, the, the law categorizes those offenses as misdemeanors and, and things like simple drug possession of, you know, of, of a controlled substance are felonies, right? So the, the, the element of the law that I think raises awareness is most people would recognize domestic battery as a serious offense, uh, but given the fact that it's a misdemeanor crime, it may not get the kind of attention during pretrial uh, detention considerations currently that it, it, that may warrant. So, so th those are the kind of we've categorized the three groups of detainable offenses based on the dangerousness consideration that way that they're the non-probational forcible felonies and sex offenses as one group. Those are the most serious crimes. Fortunately, they're also the least frequent of offenses, right? So they account for a relatively small share of those uh, that are arrested and therefore would be you know, detained. The larger group is the, the domestic battery offenses. And then beyond that is anybody charged with a, a class three or more serious felony uh, could be considered for detention under the willful flight standard that you pointed out. To what extent, then, is it changing the makeup of people who are going to be detained pre-trial? Is it, is it going to be similar, or what does the research show there? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously we don't have any research to say what has happened because it hasn't been implemented yet, right? But at least the way we're interpreting the data we're looking at and, and our understanding of the law is we cannot predict at this point with any confidence if this policy will result in more people in jail or fewer people in jail. Um, what we are confident in predicting is that the characteristics of who is held in jail after the law goes into effect will look different than it does currently. Um, because there are people now in jail uh, granted, they may stay for a relatively brief period of time, um, but under the Pretrial Fairness Act, they can't be detained. So someone charged with the least serious drug possession offense currently may be detained for a couple days um, or longer if they can't post the bond, uh, but none of those individuals will be detained um, under the Pretrial Fairness Act, at least for their initial a detention consideration. So there will be none of those individuals detained. Um, there are people detained now that can be detained under the law that will likely be detained under the law, right? So people charged with first degree murder and criminal sexual assault and armed robbery with a firearm, they currently get detained. Um, some of them are able to post money and get out, uh, which under the law they wouldn't be able to do. Um, and so they may actually spend more time in jail. And, and then when we get to the domestic violence offenses, again, currently they are detained to a degree, but most post bond uh, within a relatively brief period of time. So it may be under the law that more of them 
stay in pretrial detention for a longer period of time. So that's at least the way we're we're hypothesizing that the jail population may change. The sheer size of it, we can't predict, but the composition of who's in jail will likely shift to where uh, those individuals in pretrial detention are charged with more serious crimes. And in, in total, they're held for a longer period of time, which has implications for sheriffs who run jails because they may be dealing with a detention population that remains under their custody for a longer period of time than than under previous conditions, which has implications for services provided and visitation and, and those kinds of things. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why you see so many um, of the domestic violence advocacy groups supporting this bill. I won't ask you to say why they're supporting it, but uh, so. Well, I think you know, I'm, I'm comfortable answering. I think that, that they're supportive of it because they feel as though the current practices and, and policies don't ensure that those domestic batter those individuals charged with domestic battery are held when they pose a, a risk to to victims right because it's primarily a question of whether or not the defendant can post the bond and because it's a misdemeanor offense uh, the bonds do not tend to be exceedingly high or beyond the ability to be posted by many so I mean, they, they see this as an opportunity for those domestic batters who do pose uh, a risk or a threat to victims that they can now be detained and detention means detention, right? That they'll be detained until the case is resolved and they won't be able to post bond. So I wonder if you can speak to current practices. I know bail hearings are, they might differ between the county, but they typically last maybe two, three minutes, I think your research said. So I guess, can you go into um, what you found about current practices and the main areas of overhaul with the PFA? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the concerns, and it really does vary from county to county, um, the, the concern is that in in some counties, there's not sufficient time spent considering the decision at hand. Uh, there's concern that there isn't adequate or sufficient legal representation at that point where an, where an important decision about liberty is being made. Um, so I, I think the goal of the the law is that if we are going to consider someone's liberty, that hearing should be very deliberate. It should have sufficient time for information to be collected to inform the decision. And that's why there's this opportunity for a detention hearing uh, to be held within 24 to 48 hours to provide not only the state's attorney's office, but the, the, the client's attorney to gather information that would be important to guide or inform uh, the decision. Um, so I think the, the hope is that there'll be more information available to both the prosecution and defense, but also then the judge uh, that they can use to inform this decision, which is, in, is an important decision because it's determining whether or not someone's free pretrial. Again, under the current process, and, and we don't have necessarily data to support this, but it may be that the hearings are, are fairly brief and it's done quickly because they know kind of what the outcome is going to be. They're going to require, in most cases across the state, the defendant to post money to be released. 
Um, so that decision's kind of baked in. Um, really the only decision that's to be made is how much will they be required to post? Um, and again, there's likely kind of a, a standard across the jurisdictions that for these types of crimes, we require the defendant to post this much money, right? So it's, it's really based only on what are the charges? Um, you know, what's the ability, what's the defendant's ability to post money? And, and I think it moves quickly in that way, you know, kind of take the money out. Now, really the decision is just, does this person pose a risk under the dangerousness consideration? Do they pose a risk under willful flight? And that's going to decide whether they're free or if they're released with, with or without conditions in the community. So one of the new facets of the Pretrial Fairness Act is that it creates a presumption in favor of pretrial release for any individual charged with a non-detainable offense, instructing officers to cite and release lower-level offenders that are not deemed a threat to the community. So how, do, yeah. how does the presumption of pretrial release sort of play into the circumstances of a judge considering uh, detention? Yeah, I think what's, what's trying to be balanced or, or in quote, the tension in, in the policy and in, in the debate is how much discretion should judges have, right? Um, in, in who to detain pretrial or not. Um, there's, there's two extremes, right? Uh, judges have complete discretion. They get to decide who's detained and who isn't detained. Um, or judges play no role in that decision, right? Which isn't what the law says, right? So it's, it's, where's the, the meeting point that people are comfortable with. And so what the law is trying to do is balance that. They, they limit judicial discretion in that they say there are some crimes that individuals cannot be detained for, right? So if a person's charged with a, a the, the least serious felony drug possession offense, that's non-detainable. So, so we are taking away the judge's discretion to hold them pretrial. On the other hand, for the more serious crimes, the judges have discretion as to whether or not those individuals will be detained, right? So, you know, that, that, that gets into the, the policy debate, the, the legislative process as to which offenses fall into those detention eligibility categories. But that's ultimately the question at hand is, is how much discretion are we comfortable with with providing or, or giving the, the practitioners in the field? And I think, and I'm not saying this because someone told me this, but just my understanding of criminal justice policy that I've been studying for 35 years is there was likely a view that judges were exercising their discretion in a way that individuals felt was not fair or just, uh, meaning that they were detaining people who were charged with minor crimes who didn't pose a risk to public safety or a risk of flight. And so they made the decision that for those types of crimes, like the least serious drug possession offense or the least serious retail theft offense, that we are going to uh, take away that discretion from the judge. I think the other thing that's important is that 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 shifting or that altering of discretion, uh, many would say, is critical when now the decision is, are you detained or are you free? 
perhaps previously there was a little less concern about that discretion because judges could exercise that discretion and only require the person to post a small amount of money, which still would impact liberty, but perhaps not as much. Now, now the stakes are a lot higher, right? The, the decision to detain is, is a decision to detain. It's not a wishy-washy on the fence of, well, we're going to hold you, but if you can come up with a thousand dollars, you're free, right? This is a decision about freedom. And so I think with that, the argument by many is that detention should be more constrained and, and detention should be uh, more restricted. And so they created through this policy a, a narrowing of who's eligible for pretrial detention. Okay, so uh, on that point as well, um, one of your research briefs says uh, that, let's see, I'm not sure if it was in a specific county, but based on the hearings that involve requests for no bail, uh, detention hearings may take roughly 13 minutes to complete under the PFA, um, which maybe that, that's, a, that's an increase from two to three minutes. So if you're increasing that level of involvement with these cases, how important is it to the law's effectiveness to as you said, take the discretion out of the judge's hands for some of the lesser offenses. Yeah, I'm not sure if we have produced anything where we've tried to estimate how long the detention hearings would take. Um, I know there are, we've worked with some jurisdictions to try to help them kind of work through that, but but uh, we haven't necessarily, I, we, so, some people might say that, you know, you know when, when we have a detention hearing, where we're seeking no bond, it takes a lot longer, right? So it's just a proxy. I think, again, part, part of the, at least my sense of the goal of the law is there are cases that are less serious where the defendant poses little risk of dangerousness and willful flight. And so those cases should be handled expeditiously the question is not about their liberty. The question is merely about what conditions should they comply with on pretrial release. And so let's get those out quickly, resolve those. The law also allows for um, police officers to issue notices to appear to defendants uh, who, in their view, do not pose any risk and the charges against them are relatively minor. Um, which prevents or, or reduces the need to at, even have these these hearings about release conditions, right? So, so part of the idea is which defendants pose so little risk we can expedite their release from from the system um, and reserve that time that normally we would spend on those and place greater emphasis and resources on those cases that really do pose a potential risk, but also for whom liberty is at stake. And so I think at least the, the grand thinking is, why are we taking someone, processing them through the system when the charges are minor, they're low risk, and we've now consumed a bunch of judicial resources and law enforcement resources when the police could have just said, you need to show up in court in 21 days for your, your initial hearing, right? Um, and now shift those resources and time to spending a more thorough 
or having a more thorough hearing on this consideration for detention. Yeah, right. So the police uh, for the hearing in 21 days, how, how will that hearing then be different than an initial detention hearing other than obviously that they're not mulling detention? Right. So, you know, at least in most jurisdictions currently, if, if you arrest someone for a relatively minor offense, if the police arrest someone for a relatively minor offense, usually they, they bring that individual to the local jail. The individuals processed or booked through the jail. Um, if they can post the predetermined bond amount at that point, they they can do that. Um, otherwise, they'll go to bond court the following day, um, and there will be a a hearing to determine if the person needs to post bond or if they can be released on their own recognizance. And so, as, as you think about that, that's we've now spent at least one or two days um, detaining this individual, bringing them in court, having a judge and a state's attorney and a, a defense attorney or not uh, discuss it. And oftentimes for the minor cases, they get released on their own recognizance. Right? so under the notice to appear, at least the way it's, it's envisioned as working is the police officer in the field identifies someone who's committed a crime for relatively minor crime that poses no risk. And they say, um, I'm gonna give you a notice to appear. Here's your court date. You need to come in 21 days. Um, and we've avoided all that stuff that I just described, right? Um, again, most arrests in Illinois are for relatively minor crimes. Um, it's not the crimes that get much attention from the media or for the public, but most arrests are for relatively minor crimes. and so. Again, the idea is divert those from this, the formal trappings of this process that take time and resources. Have an initial appearance where um, it will be determined if they need an attorney, but the decision isn't going to be, are you going to be detained or not? Because you can't be detained under the law. So it will be a much more brief hearing, uh, but it'll avoid any detention, even detention for a night that requires them to, to be held over until bond court. So if if you could speak to, you, you've mentioned a couple examples of those types of crimes, but would, are we looking at like property crimes that don't involve endangering individuals and what type of offenses? Could be vandalism. It could be criminal trespassing. It, it could be someone stealing, you know, a six pack of beer, right? They're all criminal offenses, but most likely are not crimes that we would say that person poses a risk to public safety and they need to be detained, right? You know, those kinds of things. So essentially, you know, those types of things, but it can include possession of a small amount of cocaine, right? That, that's a class four felony. Currently, the way that Illinois system operates is anyone charged with any felony offense has to go through a bond court hearing. Again, if the police arrest someone with $5 worth of cocaine on them and they have no criminal history record and you know they're, they're known to law enforcement as not being someone who's extensively involved in criminal activity, in, in that case, the police under the law could say, I'm arresting you for this offense. In 21 days, you need to come to court for an initial hearing rather than, okay, we're bringing you to jail. You're going to be 
booked into the jail, you're going to spend at least a night in jail until you go before a bond court judge who may say, well, it's a felony offense. And so you're going to have to post a thousand dollars to get out. And it's going to take their family a couple of days to get the thousand dollars and then they're out. This, this allows the police to say, look, this, this case is minor. This defendant is minor. We don't need to go through that. We're just going to give them a notice to appear. So I want to note here, because you brought up a trespass. So what we're discussing is the circumstances in which a judge is detaining, but uh, the police officers will maintain the same level of discretion they currently have to bring an individual into the station, regardless of crime, if they believe they're a threat to public safety. And, and that would include trespassers, correct? Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, when the police encounter an individual who's breaking the law, they need to ensure they can identify who that person is, right? Sometimes that means they have to transport them to the police department or the jail to be fingerprinted to ensure that the person who they say they are is actually who they are, right? So th there's instances where people do need to be physically brought in to custody to, to confirm their identity, right? That they're not using aliases or or things like that. Again, police have discretion over whether or not they're going to do that, right? The in the in the person who steals the six pack of beer, um, the law doesn't say that the police are required to give them a notice to appear. It just gives them that option. And in under current practices, particularly during COVID, what we saw was a lot of the less serious crimes uh, began to we're increasingly being handled that way, right? Um, because the police didn't want to put people in a squad car and bring them to jail and hold them in jail for a period of time um, because of concerns over COVID. So we've actually been changing practices as a result of COVID that in some ways the, the, the law now kind of codifies or provides more formal structure to continue. Right. So, I wonder then, um, in Senate Bill 4228 um, is, is a proposed trailer. I wanted to ask about a specific provision and how you think it might affect these numbers we're discussing. And it says, and, and this is adding to the circumstances in which pretrial detention can be uh, used. And it says, when the defendant is charged with any other crime for which the court believes there is a serious risk that the defendant will not appear in court, the defendant will pose a danger to the person or community, will obstruct or attempt to obstruct justin, justice or threaten a juror or witness. Um, does it drastically change uh, the PFA's intent? I think so, because it because it now makes everybody eligible. So you know, the, the, the work we did looking at, at, you know, what share of people arrested would be eligible for detention, and it's around 50%. What that language that you just described does is it increases it to 100%, right? It's not saying that all of them would be detained, just like we've, we've made it clear in our research that when we come up with these estimates and say what percent of arrests are eligible for detention, we're not saying that they will all be detained. Right? It's just that they have a charge that makes them eligible for detention. So, you know, I think that, you know, that, that proposed language essentially says that anybody can be detained. Um, if a judge determines that they're willful flight or they pose danger, things like that. I think at least again, what I described previously is my sense of what the inter what the intent is, is it's to reduce 
discretion uh, when it comes to less serious crime. And what that language does is it provides for that discretion. And, and so again, we're not advocates, we're not legislators, so we don't have to pass this stuff or, or debate it. But I think you know most people interpret that as the complete opposite of what groups that are trying to reform pretrial practices are seeking, just, just because it makes the detention net the universe, right? That anybody arrested could be potentially detained. Again, would judges exercise that discretion in every case they could? No. Could they exercise it in some of those? Yes. And I think that's, again, this this balance that folks are trying to strike. Right. So one of the numbers says, uh, I think, the judge would have had detention authority in roughly 56% of arrests that occurred in 20 and 21. So the 44%, are those likely people who are already being released currently uh, uh, under the system or maybe you don't want to speak to that yeah i mean the way the way you know some of the research we've done in jurisdictions where we've been able to get the data that can answer it is the vast majority of people charged with what are currently under the current version of the law non-detainable are released within a week uh, and we just arbitrarily picked a week as a time reference because it's a helpful time reference for people to think about so you know somewhere between 75 and 90 percent of people who fall into that into the non-detainable category now are not detained for, for more than a week so so it illustrates at least in most jurisdictions that currently most people are not held pre-trial other research that we've done shows that that, that most people at any given time who are facing uh, a felony charge are not under some form of detention or pretrial supervision. The important caveat to that, and I think what the law seeks to address is, but they spend some time in jail. And, and even if they spend a few days in jail, it's disruptive to their life, it's, it's problematic. And we didn't really achieve anything if we were thinking we were achieving public safety because we only held them for one or two days before their family was able to post the money that was needed. Yeah, and one of the uh, points there, I, one of your research briefs said, our analysis of data from the three years preceding the pandemic found that across the state, only 19% of those with pending felony cases were in jail custody, while 17% were on electronic or pretrial supervision. About 64% of individuals waiting trial for felony charges were living in the community without any sort of supervision. So I wonder to what extent the Safety Act, PFA, expand that supervision uh, you mentioned. Yeah, I think that, that that'll be one of the interesting things to follow and, and that, that we're going to be tracking is, does the inability to detain categories of, of defendants result in them being placed on pretrial supervision, which in some people's eyes, pretrial supervision is better than jail. To others, are we just shifting one form of, of custody to another? But, but I think at least in, in the broad scheme of things, I think most would argue that it's better for someone to be on pretrial supervision pending a case than in jail, if those are the only two options. And what might pretrial supervision look like? It, it can vary. And, and if it's done using evidence-based principles or, or practices that are found to be effective, one, it should only be used for people that have some risk for new criminal activity or 
failure to appear. Uh, so it, it shouldn't be the same for everybody. But it ranges from simple things like court reminders, checking in once a month with a pretrial service officer to confirm that you're still living at the same address, that you're aware of your upcoming court cases, those kinds of things, right? It can be fairly benign, just making sure that people are aware of, of upcoming court responsibilities and ensuring they have transportation or means to get there. It can go all the way up to more restrictive forms like being placed on electronic monitoring, having some type of court order to participate in some type of counseling program or, or treatment intervention. It, it could require some kind of face-to-face -face reporting with a pretrial service officer. Again, those should be limited, those more restrictive forms should be limited to those individuals that may pose a greater risk, right? And so, again, and, and one of the recognitions of, of stakeholders, and this was really something that was recognized prior to the passage of the, the Pretrial Fairness Act by the Illinois Supreme Court's Pretrial Commission, was the availability of that as an option in Illinois is geographically specific. Uh, so there are many jurisdictions in Illinois that do not have any capacity to provide pretrial supervision or electronic monitoring. And so their, their decisions really are limited to, we either have pretrial detention or nothing. And so that was a recognition by the state Supreme Court's commission when they produced their findings in the spring of 2020. And it was recognized for them to seek to address that gap. And, and they're doing so now with the creation of an Office of Statewide Pretrial Services that's now being implemented in those jurisdictions that had no capacity. And so and that's roughly 70 counties, right? Right. So in those jurisdictions, they will now have options, right? Even for the people that are, are detention eligible, they may decide that while this person is eligible for detention, the unique circumstances of the case that we've now considered at a detention hearing um, suggest that detention isn't what's needed, uh, that, that pretrial supervision will address the concerns that we have, and therefore we can place the person on, on supervision ensure their liberty, reduce the reliance on, on jail, um, which for a lot of counties is something they've never had the option of uh, because they lack that capacity. So then I, I, I noted some other research. You looked at 2021 numbers um, regarding the, the amount of bail. Uh, on average, people had to post. I know that this is going to differ by county like everything else, but Individuals charged with non-detainable offenses were required to pay an average of $1,646 to secure their release. Individuals held up who were detainable under the willful flight standard that they were required to pay $4,846. And then those on the public safety standard, $5,344 on average. So that number is zero now. So... Um, Maybe speak to those numbers and what they mean uh, right now uh, for, for someone who has to go through that. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the research we've done, you know, both through observation of, of the hearings where bail is being considered and, and other research, what we found is the, 
amount that's required to be posted is usually determined by the nature of the charges against the individual, right? So it's, it's how serious is the crime from a legal classification, meaning is it a, what class felony or misdemeanor is it? Um, that influences the bond <coughs> amount, right? Um, so you know, the degree to which it's based on the risks that someone poses um, it is less clear. We have not been able to really fully explain why the bond amounts vary the way that they do based on the characteristics of the case or the defendant. And, and it's likely just an issue with how judges are making this, this calculus. So I got through most of the things I wanted to ask, but I wonder if there's anything um, you think I've missed or anything listeners, readers need to know. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, the, the law was passed a long time ago. It's, it's a somewhat complex law. It changes dramatically how the system needs to operate. Um, but it's not like it's only been the last few months that people have been able to digest it or, or look at it. Um, I think the the connection to the increases in gun violence in large cities in, in Illinois and nationally is kind of fueling concerns about any change to the status quo. Um, but it's important to recognize that all that's happening under our current structure, right? Um, that, that the increase in violence, in particular gun violence, is happening with a system where people have to pay to get out. Um, and so um, you know, what we're seeing in, in Chicago and other large cities in Illinois is not unique to Illinois. Um, it's occurring in other large cities across the country, regardless of whether or not they've done anything with their with their pretrial practices or, or bail policies. Right. So um, you know, it's that that's the that's the thing that's I think a challenge right now is um, there's rightful concern over the increase in gun violence, um, but assuming that it's because people charged with retail theft come January of 2023 can't be detained isn't really connecting, you know, the, the policy with, with the outcomes um, that, that may happen. Right? People charged with murder can still be detained just like they, they are now. Um, so, well, I mean, one, one of the points there that I think it's always important to remind people of is, the people that are the subject of this law are defendants. They are not convicted offenders yet, right? So there's there's rights that the accused have. Um, a large portion of people charged with crimes are not convicted of those crimes, um, yet they spend time in pretrial detention. Right? At some point, the victim doesn't want charges to be filed or, or, or pursued. At, at some point, the prosecutor says, this this case is so minor, it's not really worth our time and resources, and so we're going to drop it. Um, 
four defendants are found not guilty because they were they, they didn't commit the crime. And so to keep that in mind um, with, with all this, that uh, under our current system, we we detain a lot of people for granted some relatively brief periods of time, but still enough time to be disruptive or to expose them to an environment where they may get COVID, right? Um, I don't know anybody that says, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind spending a couple of days in a jail, um, you know, confined in that setting. So I think that's just a, an important point to, to remind people of. The other thing that I'll say, I have never met an elected official or a criminal justice practitioner that said, I don't care about violent crimes. Um, I don't take violent crimes seriously. They all do. Um, many of them, that is their priority. Uh, that's what they they believe we should be focusing on. And so when they support things like not using pretrial detention for people charged with minor nonviolent crimes um, or having the ability to detain without an opportunity for them to post money, people charged with violent crimes, they see that as one way to address violence, right? Um, so it's not that they don't care about violent crime. It may be that they see this as the most effective way to address violent crime, focus our resources and energy on the people that are charged with the serious crime and allow us as practitioners to detain them throughout the duration of their case, as opposed to only detaining them for a couple of days and then they can post money and then they are, are putting people at risk. So I always say that there is agreement among all practitioners and policymakers that they're concerned and want to reduce violent crime. There's differences in how people think we achieve that. And that's where you get into some of the, the debate. That'll do it for this episode of Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News, Illinois. As always, thank you for listening.